In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. I can still remember that phone call. I picked up the phone and called my dad and said, Dad, on the other end of the line, yeah, what's going on? You remember how I told you our air conditioner was just on the fritz? It was pooling up water, and it just wasn't working. Yeah, I remember that. I said, it's just so frustrating. He let me vent for a moment. Um, As I said, well, the technician just left. He was here for a grand total of 15 minutes, walked straight to the closet, saw the pool of water, grabbed what looked like compressed air, shot up through the line, kicked it on, watched it drain, handed me a bill for 100 bucks, and walked right back out the door. I said, I can't believe it. 15 minutes, $100. It's just so irritating. And he said, well, he did go to technical school to learn just where to hit the compressed air through your line and just what he was looking for when he saw the signs when he opened up the closet, didn't he? I said, yeah, I guess that's a good point. And he said, well, and you know, remember how you always asked me how I learned all these things about home repair? Well, you've just learned the most valuable thing. You, you followed him around, you watched what he did, and so guess what? Next time, when you have a backed up drain pan, what are you going to do? Well, I can go to the hardware store and grab compressed air, and I find that line. He goes, exactly. He said, all these years, when I'd hit a problem that I didn't understand, and I finally had to call out a technician, I'd watch what they do, I'd ask what tools they'd use, I'd ask where they got the parts, and then guess what? I didn't call them for that the next time. And I said, well, that's a good point. And he goes, well, there's another lesson too, but sometimes you just have to discover, is it really worth your time to spend all that time to go do it, or is it just worth paying the 100 bucks so they can do it in 15 minutes? As always, as dads often do, he turned my venting session into a valuable practical life lesson that served me well ever since. I'm always grateful for that, as we are for our dads and the practical wisdom that they always offer us. But more importantly, though, um, my dad offered us more than just valuable life lessons. He always instilled within us eternal life faith lessons that form my brother and I into who we are. And that's a valuable piece that we should think about this day. And over the years, I've discovered that the way he did that was by walking in the footsteps of his heavenly father, as patterned by Jesus. Um, That's what he sought to do first so that he could model that for us. So this morning, I'd like to look at that image. And if you're not a dad, it all still applies to you. But let's look at how we walk in the footsteps of our heavenly father as patterned by Jesus this morning in the lesson we have actually from Galatians. Um, There's a few practical lessons therein for us, three in fact, along this theme, if we go through it together in these short uh, six verses. We open actually in verse 23 um, as Paul is beginning to talk about uh, the law and its matters in concerning to faith, right? It's relationship to faith. The reason for this is uh, the church in Galatia at the time, as you well know, was comprised of both Jewish and non-Jewish believers. And so the big question was, what role does the law still play? How does it interplay or work with the church? So Paul, in verse 23, actually tells us what the law was intended to do. 
in the first place. Rather than getting jumping into the nitty-gritties, like a good spiritual father, he gives the bigger lesson at play rather than just jumping right into the is it or isn't it part of the life of the church. And so he opens there in verse 23 to liken this to analogy. Before faith came, we're held captive under the law in prison until the coming faith would be revealed. He likens the law to a babysitter, for lack of a better term. But unlike the babysitters in our day, babysitters in the days that this would be written were slaves, and they had pretty much sole custody of kids um, until they would reach an age of maturity. And so Paul's point was that the law was given for a season and a purpose, namely, until such a time as Israel reached full maturity. So from the point that Moses receives the law in Sinai till the coming of the Messiah, it would hold the people of Israel um, kind of under uh, custody. So they'd know how to live, how to act, how to behave. In a sense, they're, they're infants, um, is what Paul's saying at this point, until they reach full maturity. So then in verse 24, the law was the guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So um, Christ there, right, is Messiah. So the Messiah summed up in Jesus, and this is what Paul spends a lot of Galatians doing, pointing to how Jesus is not just the Messiah, but in that term of Messiah, he sums up all of Israel. And that's important because the maturity has come not because Israel has reached full maturity themselves, but Jesus, representative of Israel, has gathered them up in full maturity, and thus their trust, trustworthiness, the people of Israel, to be um, entrusted with more maturity, to not be under the law, comes now through their trustworthiness, their faith, if you will, in Jesus. And so Paul's setting the stage here to drive uh, where he's going ultimately at the end of this. And so he says, um, but now that faith has come, we're no longer under that custodian, that guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. His point is, in using this language, the law was there for a season, it's been fulfilled, and therefore don't keep debating on whether or not it pertains to life with you. And in fact, um, Paul often doesn't pull his punches, and for those who had ears to hear and eyes to see, verse 26, where he talks in terms as sons of God through faith, that's a very specific lockup of words that the Jewish believers would know well. When they're first called sons of God, is back in Exodus, you might recall, um, when they're in slavery, it's one of the final interactions that Moses has with Pharaoh. And in that interaction, um, when He's telling Pharaoh, essentially, you're going to lose your firstborn, but Israel will not because they're firstborn sons of God. It's a precursor to show that while they're under slavery, they'll soon be redeemed and ransomed, and later we see that through the law, through um, sacrifices in the temple, and so on and so forth. So what he's basically saying is, don't go back to slavery as sons of God prior to when you were given that title, Grow up, be mature, embrace the faith that you have been given, walk in that, don't go back under something that you had as, as a custodian, and now you've reached full maturity, and not by your own merit, but because of Jesus summing you up in this, walk in his footsteps, and there attain full maturity. Don't go back to that place. So what I think this has to say to us is an equal 
invaluable lesson as we think about walking in our Father's footsteps that we too need to accept responsibility for our faith. We too need to grow up in full stature and maturity and the knowledge and love of God. And so dads, as a dad, first, let me say that is our God-given role. And we need to accept responsibility for that, for our faith. Yes, it's great to give our families great life hacks, and that is part of what we do. But the best gift we can give them are models of faith. And that means that we have to model it, just like anything else. Um, dads are notorious, right, for working things out and bringing someone along side, and no sooner are you holding a flashlight than you figured out how to fix a carburetor, um, you know, that's what we should be doing with our families. We should model that. They should see you on your knees. They should see you in prayer. Even if you've already prayed and know what the answer is, model it for them. When, as it was last night when both of ours were up, um, what do we do? We model what that looks like, a quick prayer that then they know to do. Um, Lord Jesus, let the fear go away so that we can go back to sleep. Whatever that is, something simple that they know, when I'm afraid, what do I do? I turn in prayer. Um, we open God's word, and it's a vulnerable thing, right? Because when you do that, you're going to hit questions and passages and topics that are often not the easiest to answer. That's okay. Work it out with them and alongside them. We've got to give them the model. And this isn't just for dads. This is for all of us. We've got to reach full stature and maturity in the knowledge and love of God and accept responsibility, as Paul challenges the Galatians in that same regard, so that we might be all that God has called us to be. As Paul challenges elsewhere with even less um, ambiguity, you know, some of you should be on meat and potatoes, but you're still on milk toast. Um, we, we've got to grow up. The, the, the goal is that we never are where we once were, that we continue to grow in full stature and maturity in the knowledge and love of God. So what are we doing towards that end? What, what patterns are we making? We all have people in our lives, whether we're dads or not, friends, coworkers, colleagues, grandkids, um, neighbors, and, and as we model those things, that's where they see it worked out. And it's those people that we go to, right, for help. When they see the guy, the neighbor that's always in the driveway with parts strewn everywhere, where do you go the first time something's wrong? Hey, buddy, can you uh, just take a look with me real quick? Um, it's as we model that, people know where to go, and they know who to seek out, who's going to walk with them, pray with them, and be there for them. We've got to be that example, not only to our families and the household of faith, but to the world. Now, what does that mean? Well, in the next section here, if I can get around the VBS decorations, there we go, to verse 27. <laughs> See how well Bluetooth works this morning. Um, in verse 27, we pick up with another theme, right? For as many of you are baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. So what Paul's telling them, um, which is a good thing to bear in remembrance, for our own sake, which we have been reminded of in several baptisms over the past couple weeks, is he's basically pulling forward this idea. He's conflating faith and baptism as the moment by which um, you are now incorporated into the household of faith. We know that theologically, of course, but for the purposes of the church at that point, he's saying it's no longer the law that binds you together. Because remember, under the old covenant, those who are not Jewish could still be part of 
the Jewish people. They were called God-fearers. And they would dress a certain way. They would go under the dietary restrictions of the day. They would, according to the law, go as far as they could go. And then ultimately, they were kind of in the court of the Gentiles. They could never get full access to the faith because they weren't part of the people of God. But now, Paul's reminding them that as many of you who are baptized now put on Christ. So you're not incorporated because of the law, but you're incorporated because through baptism, you are made part of the family of God. You put that on. And as such, before the cross, in that passage that many know well, there are no distinctions. It doesn't mean that we don't have distinctiveness, but it means that we no longer find identity in anything else. Whether Jew or Greek, you guys who are hashing it out in the church about well, the nature of the law, but beyond that, slave or free, he pushes the envelope even farther in distinctions that no one would have called into question. And he goes forward, male or female, you're all one at the foot of the cross. And I think the challenge for the church then, and certainly for now as well, is where do we put our identity? Where do we identify ourselves with? Um, in some titles and some uh, affinity or so on and so forth. We have to look at that. And in many ways, in addition to accepting responsibility, what we have to do is resist the passivity um, to find our identity in something apart from Christ Jesus. That is the unifying factor. And so I think the challenge, dads, uh, for us first um, on this day as we reflect on it, the church is often seen as the place where we do that, and so it should be. But in recent generations, the church, as with the rest of culture, is a professional place where you go and get that taken care of, right? Um, we, we do well to get to church, and that's good. Maybe we do really well to get our kids in Sunday school, and that's good. But then we let others who are trained in that take care of it. That's not good enough. Um, in fact, the church historically was seen as the place where catechesis or, or discipleship was done in the home first and foremost, and the access points to the church was not a one and done, but a place where the gathering of believers would come in to work out those issues, to talk about what they were wrestling down, to um, work through matters of the faith, or as Proverbs tells us, just to be sharpened, iron sharpens iron, and to be challenged towards that end. And so, likewise with us, I think we have to shift our mental model from church of something that is a place where we go to take care of matters of faith and see the church really as a launch pad or a gathering in, whichever the case may be. Um, a launch pad um, into topics or matters of faith that maybe we need to grow a little bit more in and once discussed, I'm going to enact that for the next six days. Or maybe I'm working something out prayer, whatever that may be, and then therefore I'm going to gather that in in a discussion in the church. It shouldn't be the place where we just expect that the church takes care of it, but rather we are whole uh, members therein, towards that end, just as Paul reminds us without distinction. So I was thinking about this um, and reminded of uh, one of my towering spiritual fathers in the faith, who you've had the privilege, I think, on two occasions of hearing, um, Archbishop Ben Kwashi, uh, who is in northern Nigeria, faces persecution, head of really our tradition globally these days, and, and does so many incredible things. One day I asked him, I said, okay, look, what, how, how do you do it? I mean, how do you always have these timely words, these teachings? I've seen, I've worked, I've walk, walked alongside him and known that many times he just gets 
introduced and then is expected to give a good 45 minute talk and he had no prep and always he's just spot on and I just go how, I mean how does that how does that work and he said well here's my daily rhythm and I've shared this before but it bears repeating he said I wake up at five I spend an hour in prayer and in scripture study then my wife Gloria and I at six to seven spend an hour in prayer and scripture study as a couple and then from seven to eight, which I know because I was there for a period of time in his home, the whole household, all the kids, anyone under his roof is there together for prayer, morning prayer and scripture study. Then at eight o'clock, three hours later, he goes to the office. So he's prepped for the day. He's got whatever he needs for the day and he tucks it away. And he used to tell us, be ready on any given day because you never know when you're going to have to give an account for the faith that is in you. So, and that would happen. I, I've learned that lesson once um, and never will fail to do that again, where I thought, surely today's not the day, and it was. And he pulled me forward, and I, I, you know, I kind of got going, and thankfully I'd prayed that morning and tried to get better in that discipline, but it's one of those things that we must do. The point is that we have to resist this passivity of our faith and make it something we prioritize, that we make time for, and that we nurture above all else. We've got to make that our, our, our highest aim. Um, and whether you're dad or not, that's something we all must do. And it requires where are our affiliations, where are our affinities, where do we put our time and attention so that we make that our goal. Now here's the biggest challenge. Most of us would say, and I would say, I've been challenged and it may be a lifelong goal, or at least till the girls are a little older, um, to get to that place three hours in the morning. But here's the challenge. A lot of times we think, well, I'm going to get there, but what are we doing in the meantime? Well, I, I'm working on it. Okay, well, you know, one of my other spiritual directors said, great. So then what does that mean? What are you doing now? Uh, about an hour? Okay, well, good. Well, what do you want to do in addition to that? Well, I'd like to have some time in solitude. I'm working on a 24-hour period. He goes, that's great. Work on that. But in the meantime, can you do an hour a week? I said, oh, that's, that's a good, oh, yeah, that's, that's a good point. Um, the point is, if you have a goal, work towards the goal, but take steps now to get towards the goal. Don't just say, I've got a goal and I'm gonna work at it, but what could you do? If your goal is to spend an hour a day in prayer and that's gonna take a while to happen, start with 10 minutes in the morning, 10 minutes at night. Start somewhere, move in some direction and find a way whereby you can grow up in that and model that. I think it all is summed up in this last verse. Why do we do this? Why is this the goal? Verse 29, if you're in Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Paul's saying at the end of this is a large exclamation point at the end of this passage. You're arguing about the law to figure out who's in and who's out. Who's in is through baptism, and ultimately that one household that God chose to be his offspring, Abraham's offspring. You're a part of that. You're heirs of the promise if you're in Christ. So, so keep that as your main goal. Keep that as your utmost focus. Make that your aim and effort. It's a final point that's just quite simply um, that we seek the greater reward among all the things in life means that dads, as we think about the goals that we have for our families or the things we want to achieve or the things we want to give or provide, those are great. But at the end of the day, in our heart of hearts, we know that finances come and go. 
um, education may or may not play out in the way that we hope it will. Um, in games and goals and legacies are wonderful and, and worthwhile. But at the end of the day, the only thing with absolute confidence you can give your kids or your family is Jesus. That can never lose value or go with markets or, or whatever the case may be. That is a safe and secure investment. And so whether you're a dad or not, the point is that if we keep our focus there, then, as Jesus tells us, seek first the kingdom of God. Everything else will get reprioritized around that. And that's what we must do. That's what we must think about. It's not always easy. It's a challenge. It's difficult, different seasons, and it takes different iterations. I can share that um, this past fall, you know, true confessions from your priest, I get up early before my girls. That's my time for prayer. It seemed like in that season, my girls would not get up soon enough. They were getting up um, before I could ever really get into a cup of coffee in my recliner, and somebody's coming downstairs, and I would get frustrated. Um, and, you know, the Lord kind of saw that, let me see, well, there's an opportunity here. Um, so instead, the girls know that's my prayer time, and so I'd scoop them up. And, you know, my generation, I do morning prayers on my phone. Someone would scroll for me, hey, what's that word? What book of the Bible is that? Is that Old or New Testament? They're teaching moments, right? Incorporate prayers with them. Find ways to add them in. Seek the greater reward above all the other stuff so that we're giving a legacy that is one that is unfading. I can say these points are not my own. They actually came when I was a teenager. My dad walked us through a book with these sorts of points. This is a fourth one, which I won't add another 10 minutes to go over. But um, suffice it to say, these are things that were ingrained in us. The legacy he gave us. It's on a cross that he engraved and gave to me before my daughters were born, that I wore at both of their births. It's a reminder of who we are called to be, walking first in our Heavenly Father's footsteps. And again, whether you're a dad or not, these are, these are principles that apply to all of us, that we must accept our responsibility as Christians and grow up in the faith daily. And to do that, that means we have to let go of um, this passivity that sometimes we have as believers in relation to our faith and the way we do that is by keeping our eyes fixed on the cross so that, so that, that becomes our ultimate reward that we are striving toward in this life, as Paul says, at the end of our race. If we do those things, we lead a life that is well-lived for others around us, whether we have a family or not, so that others may see the faith that we have and by God's grace be folded into the household of faith themselves. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.